Good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you or your phone. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible, the chapter number numbers are the big numbers on the page, and the verse numbers are the little numbers on the page. This morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 18b. Follow along with me as I read aloud, starting in verse 18b. That's under the subheading in your Bible, perhaps, to live is Christ. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you don't know what that means, it means that it's completely trustworthy and true, and it has every good thing that we need. Amen? I want you to listen carefully to these words from missionary Leslie Newbegin as he writes about the Great Commission. There has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. That is, it is a command. And yet, it seems to me that this misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression altogether, namely that mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. I think he's right. Missions begins with the joy of our salvation that we just sort of have to go tell other people about If we are who we say we are. We who have been made supremely happy in Jesus can't help but try to bring everyone that we know and love into this happiness and abiding joy. We just read this in Psalm 40, right? The psalmist says, I have told the glad news of my deliverance. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. But missions, I think, doesn't only begin with joy, but its ultimate end is also joy. Friends, God did not send his son Jesus to come and save a bunch of sad and mopey and boring and angry people to himself. He came to save a people who are so enthralled with him and his glory that they can't help but sing and shout and dance, even me maybe in heaven, even dance for joy, 
Psalm 67, this is the end of the Great Commission. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So, joy in the supreme worth, beauty, and glory of Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end of our mission. But what about that middle part? What about the part that's really hard, the part where Jesus says we're going to live like sheep in the midst of wolves? The part where we are going to be hated and persecuted and under constant attack? The part with enemies and beatings and poverty and war with the world, the flesh, and the devil? What does joy have to do with that part of our mission? In this morning's text, we find the Apostle Paul in the midst of great and terrible suffering. He is in chains. He is on his way to a certain death in Rome. He's under attack from rivals from within the church, the people who are supposed to be supporting him, helping him, loving him, even as he's in chains. And he's also suffering persecution from the enemies outside of the church. Rome, the Jews, the list goes on. So what sustains Paul on his mission in the midst of this suffering? Well, the answer is joy. Look at verse 18 with me one more time. Yes, and I will rejoice. No matter what's happening, he will rejoice. This morning's passage is all about joy, and we're going to come back and ex explore the concept of joy and define it and so on and so forth. But for now, I just want us to see Paul in chains, facing down his enemies, facing certain death, and he is doing the last thing that we would expect him to be doing. He's rejoicing. I mean, just try to put yourself in his shoes. Try to imagine how strange this would feel. Imagine that one night a mob came to your house, surrounded your house, and drug you out into the street. Imagine further that you are then beaten by this mob and thrown in jail. Then you are given an unjust trial in a kangaroo court. And then as you sit in chains waiting for your verdict, which all things considered you know will almost certainly lead to your very gruesome and painful death like your master... Imagine that while you wait to hear this bad news, you find out that some people in the church who are supposed to be helping you are actually actively trying to hurt you. Would you be able to rejoice in that moment? Would you be so full of joy in your heart that you wouldn't even be able to help it? It would just have to come up out of you. You would have to overflow into praise and thanksgiving and gladness to God. This is the part where our pride kicks in and we say, oh, yes, of course I can do that, you know. But maybe we'll all just sort of be honest with each other. Instead of being like Peter, no matter what, Lord, even if everyone denies you, I won't deny you. Right? Maybe we can just sort of have a little bit of humility and recognize what Jesus taught the disciples, that even if our spirit is willing, the flesh is often weak. Maybe we'll be willing to admit that we probably couldn't rejoice in that moment. 
unless, unless God helped us to. Unless the same Holy Spirit that lived in Paul lives in us and could cause us to rejoice even through the toughest trials and the scariest circumstances in the deepest possible pain. I'm up here this morning because I believe you can. I believe that we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering. And I want to help you believe that too. So why is Paul so full of joy? How is he able to be so full of joy? Well, just look at verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So, in Paul's mind, as he's thinking about his present suffering, he can rejoice because he believes that no matter what, he will be delivered. Now, it's important that we understand what Paul means here when he says, I will be delivered. He does not necessarily mean he will escape from jail. He does not necessarily mean that he will not be executed. You can see that partly through a word study, the word that's translated as deliverance here. In the original Greek, it's the word soterion, from which we get the word soteriology, which is the word that we use to talk about the doctrine of salvation. This leads us to believe that perhaps he's not talking about temporal deliverance, but ultimate deliverance, salvation deliverance. If you look at the way the word soterion is used throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's used 17 other times, and it always refers to salvation. If you look at the way soterion is used in the book of Philippians, it's used two other times, always in reference to salvation. This leads us to believe that the deliverance that Paul is talking about here is not deliverance from prison or enemies or death, but the deliverance of salvation. But a word study may not get us there. So in order to help us see what I think Paul is saying here, we just need to follow the logic of the text. So look at verse 20. If you look at the beginning of verse 20, you'll see the word as there at the beginning of verse 20. That, that word as in the Greek, it's a very important word. It's kata. It can be translated as or according to. So what that means is that the deliverance that Paul is talking about in verse 19 flows from the reasoning that is employed in verse 20. So what is the reasoning employed in verse 20? He says, I know I'll be delivered. In light of or because of this reality, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Listen to this part. Whether by life or by death. And there we have the key to unlocking the passage. The deliverance that Paul is talking about cannot be the deliverance from death because he says he will have it even if he dies. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, whether I escape from prison and live and come back and be with you, Philippians, or stay in chains and die a horrific, gruesome death on a cross, I know that Christ will be honored in my body, and therefore deliverance will be mine. Now, one of the main reasons why these verses are in the Bible is so that you will read them and say, this is true of me. 
This is true of me. I know that through the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit, I too will be delivered. I will not be put to shame in the midst of my trials and tribulations. I will be of good hope and courage because I know. And not like I kind of know, not I hope to know, not I aspire to know, not I'm trying to know, but I know. I know that whether I live or die, Christ will be glorified in my body. So that's it. That's the point of the passage. That's the main thing that God wants you to hear about your relationship to him this morning. Having said that, I think that there are some riches for us to mine. So I have four application points for you this morning. Note takers, here they are. Number one, gospel joy. Number two, gospel courage and confidence. Number three, gospel prayer. And number four, gospel shame. So that's gospel joy, gospel courage and confidence, gospel prayer and gospel shame. Point number one, gospel joy. You know, it's, it's kind of sophomoric to uh, give a presentation or deliver a speech and define a word using the dictionary, right? Like, the dictionary definition of democracy is, and then you write Merriam-Webster's dictionary, but I'm going to do it this morning. Because I think the dictionary really nailed it in their definition of joy. It says that joy is intense and especially ecstatic, and listen to this word, exultant happiness. That's pretty good. Because that, that language of exultant really captures the biblical concept of of joy. Joy is what we experience when we are so happy in God that it just cannot remain within us. It has to come flowing up out of us. We must exalt in God with every part of our being. We have to declare his goodness. So now here's the question. How is it that Paul is so full of intense, ecstatic, exultant happiness in the midst of his suffering? Right, we've already talked about that a little bit, but let's just turn it a little bit and look at it from a, an even different angle. Think about it just physically. What, what must it have been like to be in the Apostle Paul's physical body as he was going through these trials? Uh, uh, when you're in danger, when you're in times of extreme stress, every part of your body responds with tension due to the turmoil. Right? The, the stress response of the body is, is incredibly powerful. Your endocrine system kicks into overdrive. Your, your muscles tighten. Your blood pressure increases. Your heart rate goes up. Your breathing becomes shallow and rapid. Even outside of that immediate response, you, you struggle to sleep. You, you can't eat and a bunch of other things. And if you've ever been through a a season of sustained and serious trial, then you know that some of these physical effects on the body, they can last not just days and weeks, but months and even years. We've all seen people who look like they've aged two years in the time of two months due to the stress that they've experienced. And we should not make the mistake, friends, of thinking that the Apostle Paul, because he's an apostle, think that he's immune to this kind of stress and what, could, what it can do to a person. 
when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he was talking about, you know, beating, stonings, being shipwrecked, naked, so on and so forth. And at the very end of that list, he says, and apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he says, who is weak? Am I not weak? That is, don't think that just because I'm an apostle that I don't feel the weight of this, that it's not bearing down on me. And yet Paul rejoices. He's, he's human just like us. And that must mean that we should be able to rejoice as well. The question is, how does he rejoice? Well, I think we have to make sure that we remember that the ability to rejoice, the experience of joy, it's not a fruit of the flesh, right? Paul's joy is not rooted in his physical experiences. Joy, Scripture tells us, is not a fruit of the flesh, but a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. So our ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering, it's not natural. That is, it's not in our flesh. The only reason that Paul can rejoice is because... Well, the only reason that you can rejoice and I can rejoice and that any Christian can rejoice in the midst of such tremendous suffering is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Guys, listen, if you're not suffering now, don't tune me out. Things are going pretty good for me. You live in a fallen world. The day is coming, friend, when Every last cell in your body will be screaming at you in anger and fear and anxiety. And everything in you will be tempted to despair. But the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian living in you, will say to you in that moment, Yes, I will rejoice. Not because the danger isn't real, not because the pain isn't present, not because the fatigue can't be felt, but because the joy of the gospel runs deeper than anything else that we can experience in the flesh. So my application for you here is really twofold. First, it seems pretty self-evident, but I just want to say it anyways. Root your joy in Jesus. Right? If Paul's joy is not connected to his bodily safety, if Jesus' joy wasn't connected to his bodily safety then our joy shouldn't be either. Friends, the deepest joy we can know as Christians, I mean, greater than the joy of having a spouse that, that is like, a, you know, the best spouse ever, like my spouse, obviously, greater than the joy of having a house full of happy children, greater than a fulfilled career, greater than bodily health, greater than success and admiration in the community, even if you combine all of those things together, just way, way, like a thousand leagues underneath that, the deepest possible joy we can have as Christians is for Christ to be glorified in our bodies, in our lives. If that's not true of you, if you think, I don't know, Sean, I actually do enjoy my family more than I enjoy the glory of God in me. You just may not be a Christian. That's okay. It's probably good that you would realize that and begin to think through that and maybe talk to somebody about that. Let's move on.
The second application point has to do with enemies of the gospel. Remember, Paul is facing down enemies of the gospel even as he sits in prison. So here's your application. Outrejoice your enemies. Outrejoice them. The way that you win is by not letting them steal your joy. The way that you witness to the lost is by showing them that their joy cannot be taken from you by their attacks. When I hear people say hurtful things about me in my ministry or my church, my fellow elders, my church members, when I see nasty things that people have said about me on the internet, I'm a human. It it does do something. The arrow gets through the armor a little bit, but I always, this is what I do. I always try to stop and I just try to tell myself, you can't out rejoice me. You just can't do it. When someone slanders or attacks you for the sake of the gospel, you have got to be able to say to yourself, you can't out rejoice me. Now you have to, you have to be sincere. You have to really mean this. You, I'm not asking you to like you say after me whether you mean it or not and eventually we'll get there. I'm talking about the aim for everyone in this room, I hope, is to get to the place where we can say this and really mean it. So it doesn't come off as spiteful. Oh, you think you can hurt me? You can't, right? Like, that's not what we're trying to do. And we're not trying to say it superficially. People can smell that. They can smell superficiality. They can smell when you're being trite and when you're not being sincere. Uh, Yeah, well, guess what, buddy? You can't out rejoice me. They're going to smell that a mile away. I'm talking about having a heart that's so cultivated in Christ, that so loves Jesus, that's so deeply steeped in the joy of the gospel that we can say it and mean it, and it will mean something to the people who hear it. We have to be able to look at our enemy and pity him. Because, friends, when people make enemies of us for the sake of the gospel, they're not really our enemies. They're the enemies of Christ. That deserves our pity. And then we have to look at God and we have to take our eyes off of our enemy and we have to look at God and and look at all of his many great promises that he will certainly keep to us. And then we have to look at the cross, right, where where the cost for those promises was paid. And then we have to look at the empty tomb, which is the guarantee of those promises, right? How can God keep his promises if he's not all-powerful? He can't. How do we know that God is all-powerful? Look at the empty tomb. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that God uses to keep all of his promises to us. And then as we meditate on all of these realities together, we have to let our hearts just be filled with joy until it can't be contained any longer. And we just let the joy of the gospel spill the banks of our heart until we can't even hear the words of our enemies anymore. Point number two. Gospel courage and confidence. What makes a man courageous? What makes a woman confident? What empowers Christians to walk into situations that they have no earthly chance of winning? The answer is the gospel. In this morning's text, we see Paul has a sort of deep and unshakable confidence in the power of the gospel. And this gospel confidence, it it strengthens his spine. 
it causes him to hope against all hope. It empowers him to eagerly, that's the word the text used, eagerly expect great things from God. Just, just let's reread the text again. It's just a few verses. Let's reread it again with this in mind. Gospel confidence and gospel courage. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. I love that. He says, at all ashamed. Not even a hint of shame. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Friends, this gospel confidence, this gospel courage is yours in Christ Jesus. Do not make the mistake of thinking that courage is like some special issue spiritual gift that only goes out to like the high-ranking Christians in God's army. Like it just goes out to like apostles and prophets. No, it goes out to you who have the Holy Spirit in you. So my call to you this morning is to start living like it. Sometimes confidence can be confused with cockiness. That's unavoidable. It's lamentable. I wish it wasn't the case. It's the case in my own life. Confidence and cockiness can be mixed up together in the same sinful heart. But, but ultimately, the confidence we can and should have as Christians is never to be born of pride. To the contrary, our confidence should flow from a place of deep humility, which says, I actually don't trust myself at all to be delivered. I'm weak, but I do trust completely in God who is not weak, right? So here's your first application for point two. Stop walking, talking, acting like a weak, wimpy, mealy-mouthed Christian. Stop acting like a soldier who's fighting in a war that is as of yet undecided. Or even worse, a war that may be lost. The war has already been won. It was won on the cross 2,000 years ago. When Jesus got, got up out of the grave, that was the end of it. Stop shaking like a leaf in the wind. Straighten your spine. I'm not, I'm not just talking to men in the room, although I am especially talking to men in the room. I'm talking to you too, ladies. Straighten your spine. Roll your shoulders back. Stick out your chest. Set your jaw. And walk like Jesus is victorious. Because he is. For you. He got up out of the grave. He's reigning at the Father's right hand. His Holy Spirit lives in you. The victory of the church is guaranteed. Jesus said, Not one of my sheep will be lost. Live like that. And don't just hope for the power of God in your life. Eagerly expect it. That's what Paul says. He says, I eagerly expect it. Not I'm tentatively expecting it. Like, oh man, I sure hope the package shows up today. No, eagerly expect it because God has promised it. You can say with Paul, I know that I will not be at all ashamed. I know that my God will deliver me. I know that God will be glorified in my body. 
come what may. Now listen, when you're thinking about your own ability, feel free to walk and talk and act like a weak, puny, pathetic coward. Because you are. And so am I. Spiritually speaking, we are all like Adam. In the garden, Adam should have been brave and courageous. He should have been a leader, and he failed. And the story of the Bible says that every one of Adam's descendants fail in the same way. We are all like Peter, who thought that no matter what happened, he would be brave for Christ. And then when the moment came, he ran in fear. But when you think about deliverance, God doesn't want you to think about yourself and your power. He's calling you to think about him and his power. Think of the Lord of hosts. Think of his strong right hand. Think of the righteous life of Christ, his all-satisfying work on the cross and the power that raised him from the grave. Before moving on from this section, I want to briefly note the passing of pastor and theologian Tim Keller. Many of us have been greatly helped by his ministry, and we thank God for him. His ministry was imperfect, like mine, like yours, like everyone's. But he was faithful to the end, exceedingly faithful to the end. And he was useful in ways that I don't even think we'll begin to comprehend until we get to heaven. I don't want to make this sermon about Tim Keller. And Tim Keller would not want me to make this sermon about Tim Keller. But I just, I can't move on until I tell you about at least one way that Tim Keller better helped me to understand this morning's text. He did it by helping me to better understand the concept of courage from a biblical perspective. In a sermon that he preached right after undergoing surgery for thyroid cancer, Keller talked about courage that comes from within and courage that comes from God. And in that sermon, he said that the world tells us that we must find a bravery from within ourselves. We have to screw ourselves up, work ourselves up, and and tap into this inner bravery that is latent within our souls. Keller says, no, no, that's not the way that the Bible talks about courage. Courage. The Bible, says Keller, teaches us that true courage, true gospel courage, can only come when we look away from ourselves and look towards God. True courage can only come from hope. And isn't that exactly what we see in this morning's text? Friends, true courage is not the absence of fear. It is hope in the God who has overcome every reason for us to fear. Tim Keller was, uh, by his own very humble admission, a very fearful man. And so am I in many ways. And so are you, probably. But my courage and Tim's courage and your courage, it can only come from a place that must give way to hope if Jesus really got out of the grave. So I praise God for the courageous life and ministry of Tim Keller. His hope gave him courage to the very end, and Christ was honored in his life and death. The second application I have for you here in point two is a corrective to the way in which some people, some well-meaning, some not so well-meaning, try to apply these verses. Some will come along and they'll find someone who's in the midst of a terrible trial, and in an attempt to be a good friend and counselor, they'll say something like, 
hey, I know that you're going to make it through this. And they'll point to these verses, right? They'll say, look, Paul knew he was going to be delivered. I know that you will be delivered too. But this is where it's really important to understand what the text means because we've already seen that what Paul means here is not that he's going to escape from prison. As a matter of fact, we know Paul did not escape from prison. He died a martyr. But his deliverance was that he went to go be with Jesus. Paul wasn't delivered from death. He was delivered from sin and the second death. So, I want to help everyone here this morning to be good and wise counselors, to not be like Job's friends who come along and say the worst thing at the wrong time. And I have been there myself. But you have to understand, friends, that Jesus nowhere has promised us that we will survive the difficult trials of this life. You, you can just scan the pages of the Bible. There's no promise that if you get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow that you will survive chemo. God has not promised that to you in his word. Now, does that mean that he will not give that to you as a gift? Not at all. We all have celebrated together our sister Susan Stewart, who has survived two rounds with chemo. Praise the Lord. But even as I talked with Susan through that whole experience, she knew and I knew that God never said that he would promise her survival. God does not promise that your marriage will survive an affair. Or the death of a child. God does not promise that your savings will not be eviscerated when the stock market collapses. If the stock market collapses? I don't know. God has not promised that you will finally get that baby that you've been praying for. You may get it, but he doesn't promise that to you. The reality is is that what he has promised is something that's better than all of these things individually and better than all of these things combined, that no matter what, if we belong to him, we will be delivered on the last day. I know what it's like to be going through significant trials and suffering and how when you're going through it, you can't even think about that. It seems like God's glory is just a million miles away. The last day it's just, it doesn't even, your whole, the frame of your mind is just filled with your suffering and your angst and your sorrow. But this is where faith comes into the matter. This is where meaningful Christian discipleship comes into the reality of your life. You have to have be, been trained up in the truths of the gospel and the truth of the word such that even when, because the frame of your mind is so filled with suffering, you can't see anything else, there's still something deep inside of you that says, but one day, but one day, all of this will seem as nothing. One day, this will all seem like a light and momentary affliction. And then you will have to fight to believe that by faith. Point number three, gospel prayer. The age-old question, why should we pray if God is sovereign? Well, I can try to unpack that for you theologically, and I think we've actually talked about this a lot so far in the book of Philippians. So instead of kind of running through all that again, I'm just going to give you the, probably the best answer, the Sunday school answer, because the Bible tells us to. In this morning's text, we see that Paul's confidence in his own deliverance comes 
through two things. Number one, his confidence that the Spirit will work on his behalf. And the second thing, the prayers of the saints. Look at verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What I just want to point out to you here is that we tried to bring this reality into our lives as a church. So if, if this is like your first time or second time visiting us, and you're like, y'all be praying, right? Like, wow, we prayed a lot this morning. Yes, we did. Because there's a lot to pray about. And we believe what the Bible says. The Bible says not only that it's an honor and a privilege to go before the Lord and to participate in, in these works of redemption through prayer, but also that he will hear our prayers and then move on our behalf. Paul said, I know that I will be delivered because you guys are praying for me. So this morning in, in Will's pastoral prayer, which was so edifying, did you notice the way that we prayed for the persecuted church? Right? We prayed for them believing that God will hear us this morning and will move on their behalf. And we try to do that every single week. And, and we also try to pray like this. We don't pray, God, for the Christians in China, please don't let them suffer. We, we don't want them to suffer. And we say, Lord, please remove them from the suffering. But even if you don't, even if you don't, let your will be done. Right? Who else prayed like that? Do you remember? One really important guy in the Bible. Jesus. That's right. He said, Father, remove this cup from me. Right? Take me out of this trial. Remove this suffering. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And the trial was not removed from him. The suffering was not taken away. He endured the fullness of God's wrath on the cross. Parents, this is a good way for you to pray for your children. Sometimes what we want most for our children is not what God wants most for them. As a mom, as a dad, sometimes when our kids are suffering and our hearts are just absolutely breaking, we just pray, God, please don't let them go through this. Please take this away from them. But what if God sent that to them for their sanctification? What if your child, oh, little Susie, who comes to church in her cute little dress every Sunday, what if she's not regenerate? What if she's not really a Christian? What if she's just grown up in the church thinking, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's only cultural? And what if the, the trial that little Susie goes through as a 12-year-old little girl is the thing that finally wakes her up to the reality of the fact that she needs Jesus? What do you want more, for her to not suffer now or for her to not suffer eternally in hell? What if God is using this tribulation in the life of your children to bring them to salvation? It seems to be the way that God works. He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can see our great need for him. I was interviewing a, a fellow pastor this week on sanctification and purity. He wrote a book on it, so I wanted to hear what he had to say, all the good stuff. And he was telling me about how he talks to his accountability partners. And he always... Uh, all of his language was the language of prayer request. So here's the sample. He, text message. 
hey, brothers, please pray for me. I'm struggling with selfishness today. I'm about to be home. I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to serve my wife and children like I should when I walk through the door. So please pray for me. Now, a, a, a cynical person might look at that prayer request and find it to be performative, right? Perhaps perfunctory. But I know this brother. I know him really well. I know that when he asks for that prayer, he really, he really means it. He really wants it. Because he really believes that if those brothers pray for him, the Lord will move on his behalf. So as we wrap up point number three, my question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord will use the prayers of the saints to deliver you? Well, there's one way to find out. How are you doing with transparency? How are you doing sharing your struggles with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Whenever you're going through something in your marriage, with your finances, even something as embarrassing as like your sex life, or some of your deepest idolatries, are you willing to just sort of open yourself up? And even if it's just with one other trusted brother or sister in the church, just to say, I'm dying here. Help me. Pray for me. I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my rope. Are you doing that? Oh, Sean, I could never, I could never, I could never talk about that. Not that sin struggle, not that addiction, not that doubt. I could never bring that up. Look at all these people. They have it all together. <laughs> wrong. As the pastor of most people in this room, I'm here to tell you, wrong. No one has it all together. I don't have it all together. We're all a bunch of idiots trying to follow Jesus together. Sean, that would be so embarrassing. Yeah, it probably will be. And maybe that's exactly what you need. Maybe you just need to put that fear of man to death. Maybe you need to humble, which comes from the word humiliate yourself. Because God gives grace to the humble. He looks favorably on those who are humiliated in this life. So if you want to be helped more by Jesus, consider opening yourself up to the saints and telling them exactly what you need and trust that they will have your back in prayer. Point number four, gospel shame. In feudal Japan, there were no real categories for right and wrong, good and evil, they didn't even believe in the concept of love. Love is duty in feudal Japan. In the same way, there was no concept of good and evil, only shame and honor. So the warrior class in feudal Japan, the samurai, they were charged with defending the honor of their lords in particular and all of Japan in general. But upon any failure, significant failure to complete a task, the samurai would have to offer to commit something called seppuku, which is voluntary ritualistic suicide so the samurai would sit before his lord on on two knees and he would bow and then he would take his long sword and he would eviscerate himself and then there would be a, a second samurai behind him waiting to take his head off as soon as he performed the disembowelment now feudal japan is probably the most poignant example of an honor shame culture but it is not the only honor shame culture Every culture that the world has ever known trades to some extent in honor and shame, including our own culture. 
The modern secular West is trying its best to rid itself of all shame, but only in one direction. Now, if you do a quick word search for shame, like I did this week preparing the sermon, in like your Bible app or maybe Bible Gateway or Bible Hub, you'll see that the concept of shame, it runs like a river through the Bible, right? It begins in Genesis 3 with the fall, and it goes all the way to the cross, and then finally all the way to the last day. In this morning's text, we see that the Apostle Paul trades in the language of shame. He says that his great confidence and eager expectation is that he will not ultimately be put to shame. Look at verse 20 again. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Now here's, here's what I want us to see in our final point. Shame is real. It's rooted in the world that God has made. Sometimes we, we think that shame is just this thing that's been invented by our culture, that it's, it's arbitrary, that it's been dictated by the whims of a relativistic moral system. No, friends, that is not the way that the Bible thinks about shame. The Bible says that shame is real and it comes from God. Some of it can come from us unnecessarily, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. The shame that Paul is talking about, the shame that he says, I, I, won't, I won't have that on the last day, it's the shame that in Romans 10 he says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. That shame is the shame that comes from God. Friends, what I want us to see here is that there is a shame that comes from God that we richly deserve. You see, shame is just really what we feel when we become aware that we have done something wrong. You ever been caught in the act of doing something? Right? You, maybe you were stealing a little money from the cash register at work. Maybe you were like me, my first job at Cracker Barrel, I was poor. I used to be a drug dealer. I got saved. I'm trying to do my best to have like a good, honest job. And I had no money, so I would steal food off the plate and take it home, and that would be my dinner for the night. One day I was stealing food off of a plate and my manager saw me. Immediately what I felt in that moment, that's shame. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden, when they ate the forbidden fruit, when they rebelled against God, they became aware of their sinfulness. This brought them shame. And that shame caused them to hide from the presence of the Lord. And friend, shame has been causing us to hide from God ever since. I hope you know, friends, that every one of us, apart from Christ, every single person lives under the burden of shame that sin brings. Because God is holy. Without Christ, we are all under the shame of debt, the shame of guilt, the shame of sin. The Apostle John says it like this. Listen to 1 John 2.28. On the last day, all men will shrink from Christ in His coming due to their shame. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, man, this sermon is such a disappointment. Sean, this is exactly the kind of message that's keeping people out of the church. What people need is hope. They don't need to come in on a Sunday morning and have you wag your finger at them and try to shame them. Friends, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. 
You see, I'm not trying to put some kind of false, fabricated shame on you that's really just the invention of society. I'm trying to help you see and understand that you are already under shame from God, and I'm trying to give you a way out from under that shame. I'm trying to tell you how you can escape it. What people need most is not to be free from the shame that they deserve. They need to be freed from the wrath of God. Only when we recognize our shame can we hope to come out from underneath it. So how does that work? Paul says he knows he will not have shame on the last day. How can we know the same thing? Well, the samurai believed that the only way to restore honor and eradicate shame, we already said, was seppuku, ritual suicide. Now, underneath this performance is an ideology. The, the, the idea underneath this performance is the same basic human error wherever we look. The belief that we can fix our own shame problem. Right? The belief that one, when we realize what we've done, when we feel that shame, that, oh, the first thing I need to do is fix it myself. You remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden? They went and made fig leaf underwear for themselves. I thought that they could fix it themselves. And we've been doing that ever since. The Bible teaches us that the only way we can escape our shame is to transfer it to someone else who is completely honorable. And that's a real problem, right? Because there is no one honorable enough to take our shame from us and absorb it completely. Right? I think about my own children. If, they, if, they, if, they, if they're not trusting in Christ and if they're under that shame, because I love them, I would gladly take them away from that. I would take them out from under that. I would take their shame onto myself and destroy it. But I can't do that because I am shameful too. The only person honorable enough to absorb our shame and destroy it completely is God. And this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel says that because Jesus is in every way perfect, he has taken our shame and he has absorbed it and he put it to death on the cross. And because of that, all who trust in him don't ever have to be ashamed again. This is why Paul can say in verse 20, it is my eager hope and great expectation that I will not be at all. The gospel is not to erase, it does not promise to take away part of your shame and then you have to do the rest yourself. It doesn't promise to sort of get the ball rolling. Hey, I'll help you, but only if you help yourself. I'll take the first step and then you do the rest. No, you, you can't do it. Christ has to do it for you and he has done it for you on the cross. Christ's shame was momentary, although it was really an eternity. And that points to the reality of our shame if we have not repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. Shame is all that awaits us if we do not turn to the one who can take it away from us. When you think about God, do you think he's up there sort of like, sort of like bogarting his grace? Like, do you think he's being stingy with it? Do you think he wants everyone else to come out from under shame but you? No. You think you're here by accident this morning listening to this message? 
you're here this morning because God wants you to know that you don't have to live with your shame anymore. That's not therapeutic preaching. It's the truth of the gospel. So in closing, I think that there are two basic ways uh, for a hearer to, to listen to this message. Some of us here this morning are full of shame and would like nothing more than to be rid of our disgrace. And if that's you, the gospel message should be sweeter than honey. It should be more powerful and beautiful than the rising sun. The joy of the Lord will remove every last ounce of shame that you have ever known because of your own sin and because of the sins that have been committed against you. All of that will be removed and cast into the sea. But there may be someone here this morning, maybe several people here this morning, who are on some end of the spectrum of repulsed by this message. You might be sitting here thinking, who does this guy think he is? I don't feel any shame. Actually, I think I'm a pretty decent person. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm an upstanding citizen. I pay my taxes. I try to help the poor. I don't cheat on my wife or husband. I try to be a good mother or father, you know. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. Friends, if only pretty good were the standard. But it's not. Holiness is the standard. If you think that you have no shame and you don't need any help to be brought out from under the shame of your sin, I want to leave you with the words of Jesus. And just ask yourself if you believe these or not. If you say you're not a Christian, I wouldn't expect you to believe these words. But if you say that you are, I hope that you'll listen to them carefully. Jesus says that if you don't realize that you are under shame, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says that of you. And then he says, here is a solution. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I also ask that you would buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be able to see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to be zealous in our repentance, to know you, to love you, to trust you, to do every good thing that you've promised to do. Help us to be men and women of great courage and confidence to the glory of your name forever and ever. Amen.